You know, last week I had mentioned that sin was becoming much more devastating to me the more I dealt with people, the more I experienced it in other people's lives, but also in my own personal life and how, uh, how heavy it started to get. This week, um, this doesn't really have much to do with the, the sermon, though it's all interconnected. It all deals with faith, but I did something, some sin, and I felt devastated about it. And as I was thinking through that sin and looking at faith bringing the victory, right? We just sang about Jesus brings the victory. Well, how does that happen in everyday life, right? Because that's, I mean, that's what we deal with. I mean, it sounds nice, doesn't it? That Jesus brings victory. It sounds nice that Christ took his sins on Calvary, or took our sins on Calvary, and how he did this. And I was thinking about that's actually just a few minutes ago. But in the in the military, and I, I don't think about the military often when I'm sitting here in church. But in the military, I used to get assigned the heavier weapons. I don't know what it is about small guys, but we get assigned the bigger weapons that we have to carry on these long road marches, right? And we call them road marches where you walk along with a backpack and, and your gun and you go these long distances. For some reason, they wanted to assign me the 50 cal when I was in 10th Mountain. The 50 cal, if you know anything about a 50 cal, is it's a heavy machine gun and it's a big one. It's a crew serve. So I carried the, the weapon with the barrel. Somebody else carried the, carried the spare barrel. Somebody else carried the ammo and it was spread up amongst the squad. And someone else carried a tripod. And so if we were to take contact, someone would drop the tripod, then I'd run up with the gun and I'd place it on there, then I'd sit down and get in position and then rack it and someone else would get the ammo and it's this whole long process. But I'm carrying this, I, I, someone's going to correct me, but it's probably about 85 to 110 pound weapon system on my back, right? And I'm only like 5'5", five, five, and I'll probably weigh about 130, 140 when I was in the military. So this is a big gun. And as you're marching, and you know, you do a 12-mile ruck march over you know, a four-hour period, it wears you down. And as that burden gets heavier and heavier, and your feet get the blisters, and you have all these physical pains, someone that's marching next to you may say, give me that 50 cal, I'll carry it for you for a couple miles. right? And you look at that person with relief. You're like, thank God someone else is here to bear this burden with me. But imagine us as Christians walking around in life, carrying the burden of sin on our shoulders and not having anywhere to go with that sin. And as I was thinking through that, I realized, you know, in many ways, Christ is that person that takes on that burden of sin for us. The weight, the sin that, sins, that seems to so easily entangle and um, I was just thinking about it, the sin that was so obvious in my brain that I asked for forgiveness for, and I confessed it, and, and God forgave me. I know he forgives me. And I, I remember like thinking that I'm looking over, and there's Jesus hanging on that cross, and he says, give me that. I'll carry that for you. And think about that, the sin in your life that's so continual. That's how this practically works. This is how the burden of sin is eased. Jesus says, I will hold that for you. 
I will carry that burden. Because you can be burdened over the wickedness of your own heart, can't you? And at least you should. We as Christians should be burdened. And if that burden is heavy, and Christ looks at us and says, I will carry that for you. That doesn't belong to you anymore. You don't have to take that on in 10 miles when the road march gets hard. Think about that when we talk about faith is the victory. And we're in Joshua chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there. That's where we're going to be. Um, and we'll be starting in verse 16 and go all the way through 43. And I'm not going to warn you about this passage. I hope you read it already. So, verse 16 begins like this. Now the five defeated kings had fled and hidden in the cave at... I even wrote this down, how to pronounce it. Makeda. It was reported to Joshua. The five kings have been found. They are hiding in the cave of Makeda. Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave. Station men by it to guard the kings. But as for the rest of you, don't stay there. Pursue your enemies and attack them from behind. Don't let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has handed them over to you. So Joshua and the Israelites finished inflicting a terrible slaughter on them until they were destroyed, although a few survivors ran away to the fortified cities. The people returned safely to Joshua in the camp at Makeda, and no one dared to threaten the Israelites. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me, those five kings out to me out of there. That is what they did. They brought the five kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon to Joshua out of the cave. When they had brought the kings to him, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to them, said to the military commanders who had accompanied him, Come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So the commanders came forward and put their feet on their necks. Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or discouraged. Be strong and courageous, for the Lord will do this to all the enemies you fight. After this, Joshua struck them down and executed them. He hung their bodies on five trees, and they were there until evening. At sunset, Joshua commanded that they be taken down from the trees and thrown into the cave where they had hidden. Then large stones were placed against the mouth of the cave, and the stones are still there today. On that day, Joshua captured Makeda and struck it down with the sword, including his king. He completely destroyed it and everyone in it, leaving no survivors. So he treated the king of Makeda as he had the king of Jericho. Joshua and all Israel with him crossed from Makeda to Libna and fought against Libna. The Lord also handed it, over, handed it and his king over to Israel. He struck it down, putting everyone in it to the sword and left no survivors in it. He treated Libna's king as he had the king of Jericho. From Libna, Joshua and all Israel with him crossed to Lachish. They laid siege to it, attacked it, and the Lord handed Lachish over to Israel, and Joshua captured it on the second day. He struck it down, putting everyone in it to the sword, just as he had done to Libna. At that time, King Horam of Gezer went up to help Lachish. But Joshua struck him down along with his people, leaving no survivors. Then Joshua crossed from Lachish to Eglon and all of Israel with him. They laid siege to it and attacked it. On that day, they captured it and struck it down, putting everyone in it to the sword. He completely destroyed it that day, just as he had done 
to Lachish. Next, Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron and attacked it. They captured it and struck it down, struck down its king and all its villages and everyone in it with the sword. He left no survivors, just as he had destroyed had done in at this, just as he had done at Eglon. He completely destroyed Hebron and everyone in it. Finally, Joshua turned toward Debir and attacked it, and all Israel was with him. He captured it, its king, and all its villages. They struck them down with the sword and completely destroyed everyone in it, leaving no survivors. He treated Debir and its king as he had treated Hebron, and as he had treated Libna and his king. So Joshua conquered the whole region, the hill country, the Negev, the Judean foothills, and the slopes with all their kings, leaving no survivors, completely destroyed every living being as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Joshua conquered everyone from Kadesh Barna to Gaza and all the land of Goshen as far as Gibeon. Joshua captured all these kings and their land in one campaign because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. Let us pray. Father, as we open your word and we see your beauty, Father, I pray that you would show us your glory. Help us to understand who is this King of glory, the Lord, strong and mighty. Help us to understand you as you have shown yourself in Scripture, not as some frail perception that we have. Father, we need a great King and a great God that can carry the burden of our wickedness, that can sacrifice himself for us. And so, Father, we thank you for your Son. We thank you for what he has done in our hearts and the joy and the help that he provides, the encouragement. Father, as we look at this violent and brutal passage, help us to do justice by it, that we would see you in a new light and that we would be encouraged. God, give us grace to face each day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What do you think about that passage? That was pretty brutal, huh? When you think about no survivors, that means kids, that means babies, that means women, that means everybody is being put to the sword. Why would a good God do that? When you read this passage, you're going to immediately have some theological questions, I think. Now, a person who calls themselves a liberal Christian will easily explain it away. Well, obviously, Joshua misunderstood God. That's what they would say. They would say that Joshua misunderstood God, therefore, um, what actually God said was not to destroy everyone, but Joshua, in his brutal mindset, decided that that's what they had to do to be faithful to God. That's kind of how they would, they would frame it. Or possibly, this is just a, a additional history um, Maybe they just did this and then wrote about it, and this is, this is just what happened. Maybe they didn't really hear from God. That would be a liberal Christian's attempt, or a person who calls himself a liberal Christian's attempt to rectify this. In fact, in my undergrad, that's the kind of stuff that my teachers would try to say, would be that somewhere the wires got crossed, and these Israelites did things that God didn't um, command. But I'm a more conservative Christian, and I believe that this is God's word, and what God says is true. 
But those that would call themselves fundamentalists might say this, that the Bible says it, and I believe it, and that settles it. We're not going to talk about it anymore. No questions allowed. Now, maybe it's because I'm in the why generation, and I ask the question, why? Why did this happen? I want to know why. So I'm asking why as I study this passage, and I, I absolutely believe that God says it, and I believe it, and that settles it. But why? Why would God do that? And that's what this passage is going to tell us. It's going to tell us how to deal with this brutal um, understanding of warfare in the Old Testament. So as we read through this passage, we are going to know. And there's, there are many mysteries in the Bible, right? There's many mysteries in how salvation works. There's many mysteries in how prayer works. There's many mysteries in um, man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. We have all these mysteries. But this is not one of them, because I think it's very clear why God did what he did in the Old Testament. So, in order to do that, we have to understand the background. And the first thing you should do when you're reading an Old Testament narrative is you want to ask this question. Why did the author write this text? Why did the Holy Spirit inspire it? And why did the author of the text write it? What is the purpose of the writing? Because if you understand that, that will help you understand the theology behind it. So we need to understand when has this, has this taken place. So the events that have happened are around 1400 BC. So this is about 1400 BC, and these battles are taking place. Joshua, I think, is the most likely author, obviously because it bears his name, and it talks about in several places how he wrote it, etc., some people believe that there were some scribes helping and, and giving additional information, such as last week when we talked about um, this is written in the book of Jashar. Um, stuff like that was added to kind of help build it out. Um, I believe he wrote it, and I believe that he wrote it as it is, as we see it. And what I think is that he has written this, and I know that, he has written this to point the people of Israel to the God who vanquishes their enemies. And some believe that this was kind of completed and compiled sometime around the exile period. I obviously think that Joshua wrote it during that time, and this has been something that Israelites have been hand holding on to. So why would Joshua write this history like he did? I mean, he didn't have to include every gory detail. He didn't have to talk about putting necks on enemy kings and throwing them up on trees um, probably naked, probably disfigured, and then burying them in a, in, a, in, a, in a cave. He didn't have to keep all those details, but he did. So why did he do that? I think Joshua is trying to point to something. I think he's pointing to the main thing that, that there is a sign of victory, that there is a method for victory, and that there is a means of victory. Now, we as New Testament Christians, as we read this, we have the same God. We have the same God that is described here in the Old Testament. And so God also provides us with signs of victory. He also provides us with means and methods for victory against the enemy. And the enemy is the unholy trinity, right? The world, the devil, and the flesh. We have That's who we are fighting. And each of these three things need to be defeated in God's way. And last week, we talked a lot about God will fight for you as long as you're fighting the right battles. 
And so now we are looking at the sign of victory. Visual signs encourage our faith. Did you know that? There are visual things that encourage our faith. And I'm not talking about um, the Catholic Church or the Episcopal Church with the smells and the bells, right? Where they walk through with, with incense and they have sounds and they have uh, graphic pictures and, and all the things that they have on their walls. And that's supposed to encourage your faith. But really what I'm talking about is two things that Christians have, which is the Lord's Supper and baptism. Those are the signs for the Christian to show that God has the victory. But Joshua here in this passage is now in a place to encourage and strengthen his men and women, but to strengthen them. And he uses God's words, words that God had given him, and he uses them and he ties them to a symbol. So we look first here at verse 25. Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or discouraged. Be strong and courageous, for the Lord will do this to all the enemies you fight. Do you hear that? We've heard that before. We've seen that a couple of, a year ago when we were going through the first part of Joshua. So Joshua takes these words, and we, we see these words written in Deuteronomy 31.7. Moses, Moses then summoned Joshua and said to him, In the sight of Israel, be strong and courageous. For you will go with this people into the land the Lord swore to give to their ancestors. You will enable them to take possession of it. Joshua 1.9, haven't I commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, if, if that's not a special word that you want to keep and have for the rest of this week, be strong and courageous, for the Lord your God is with you? I mean, come on. Joshua 1.18 Anyone who rebels against your order and does not obey your words and all that you command him will be put to the death. Above all, be strong and courageous. So how do the Israelites become strong and courageous? Well, first of all, we have an example. He says on, in verse 24, When they had brought the kings to him, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the military commanders who had accompanied him, Come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So the commanders came forward and put their necks, uh, their feet on their necks. Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or discouraged. Be strong and courageous, for the Lord will do this to all the enemies you fight. That's a pretty visible symbol. These kings, remember we had the, the battle last, uh, last week. We had the kings and all their armies show up. And, and Joshua and all the armies against each other. And what happens? God fights for them, destroys them, defeats them. And now we have these kings who are hiding out in a cave. So these men were scared. Um, and what we have in this narrative, and, and it's kind of confusing if you don't understand the way the narrative is going, but there's a summary at the end of each portion of the narrative. So it sounds like this is all happening either all at once or that this is happening over and over and over again. But that's not what this is saying. It's saying as they were fighting, as they were chasing the enemy down, some of his warriors noticed that the kings had run off and hid in the cave. So they stopped up the cave and kept them in there. They finished the battle. Then the sun set, right, which we see in a few minutes. And, uh, and we have the whole day is covered in this story. And there's a use of irony in here. There's a use of, um, um, well, irony, I guess, would be the best word for it. Because... The place that they ran for refuge, the cave, is their final eternal resting place, right? And so it's kind of a funny 
play on that. Um, but as we, as we as Christians, how can we be encouraged by that? So these signs that are, are being used are not useful for convincing the skeptic, right? How, if, if I was a foreign dignitary and I saw some dudes laid out and the commanders of Israel putting their feet on their necks, would that really encourage me to trust Yahweh? Probably not. If you are a non-believer and you come in here and you watch a baptism, would that really encourage you to believe that there is a God? What about the Lord's Supper? When we do the Lord's Supper and you have all these people take these little crackers and this little juice and they say this is the body and this is the blood and they break it and they drink it. So think from a non-believer's perspective for a minute. Would that convince them that there is a God? Would that be tangible evidence? No, of course not. Right? So these, these signs of victory are not for the unbeliever. These are not for the person who is questioning. These are for the encouragement of the Christian. These are for the encouragement of the one who knows God. It's a warming and encouraging of your faith. Um, it's a means of sanctification. It's a means of making you more holy. When you watch a baptism, you are reminded about the death and burial of Jesus Christ, but you're also reminded about your own personal connection to that death and burial. When you take the Lord's Supper, you are remembering His body and the blood broken and spread and bled for you. And you're connecting what God did to your circumstances. And that's what we see here in this passage, is that God gives these people, these Israelites, a sign of His faithfulness. He says, look at this. These three kings from the south, you've already defeated them. The back is broken on the viper. Do you see these visible signs as helpful to your personal growth? Because if you look at the Lord's Supper, if you take the Lord's Supper in a meaningless way, if you look at a baptism and just kind of ho-hum, are you using the means that God has provided for you to grow in faith, in trust? Or are you looking for something special? That's a problem we have today, isn't it? We want something new. When uh, I was reading the Nine Marks, they just released a journal. And uh, in it, they said, if you could sum up our whole ministry this one way. And this, this Nine Marks, they, they provide nine marks for a healthy church. And they've tried to really encourage healthy churches. And they said, if we could sum up our ministry, it would be, don't do weird stuff. That would be the summary of their ministry. Don't do weird stuff, right? Because if you look at some churches, they have glitter that falls from the sky. They have light shows and laser shows. They have a man coming down a zip line down to the front to preach a sermon, right? They have all these unique and special fancy things, but they've ignored the one thing that really matters, the real sign of the victory which is the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They've abandoned their first love. They have grown cold, and the lampstand is to be removed. When we start adding all these silly things to draw people in, and we don't trust in the one thing that, that we have, the Lord's Supper and baptism, what have we done? We've ignored it. We've ignored God. The sign of victory is right here. And this is what's beautiful. A church, no matter what the size has that. Five people in a room can remember who Christ is and they have the living Savior with them. Like this is a beautiful thing. You don't have to go to a church of 10,000 
to be encouraged. You can go to a church of five. You can go to a home group and share with each other what Jesus has done in your life. And so we have these signs of victory. These symbols help us deal with sin. Just like I was talking about the need for someone to, to take off that burden off of my back. That Jesus that we have. That's the sign, the symbol that we trust in. But also there's a method. There's a method to the victory. It's not just conquer however we want. And, and 28 through 39 is sort of a summary of the conquest of these southern cities. But there's a method to it. And before I give you the method, I want to share with you a poem that I ran across. Horatius Bonar wrote this poem. He said, it is not strength that wins. My weakness is my shield. In lowly trust we fight the fight, and meekness wins the field. Give me the lowly heart. Cast out each thought of pride. Let gentleness and love come in. And as my guests abide, thy will, not mine, be done. I would not choose my own, but let me ever, ever be thy servant, Lord, alone. But the first little part of that, it is not strength that wins. My weakness is my shield. Man, that's a turn of phrase if I ever heard one. But it is not strength that wins. It is my weakness. My weakness is my shield. In lowly trust we fight the fight. And meekness wins the field. What we see in this passage is obedience. Now you may not recognize this obedience that we're seeing starting in verse 28. This whole destroy it and everyone in it and leave no survivors pattern that goes over and over again. I think I counted six or seven times that it says no survivors were left. Why is that? Well, it's because they are obedient. So the method of victory is obedience. And that's what we see the Israelites doing. They are being obedient. And we need to understand true evil and wickedness. You know, in our, in our Americanized, comfortable society, it's really hard for us to grasp total destruction. But if you go to a country, maybe overseas, and you fight a war, and you see the character of the people that live in that land, you may be tempted to say, Maybe they all need to be destroyed. When we see the wickedness in the world around us, and it's growing, we see it even encroaching in our country, we wonder, is there any way to redeem it? Is there any hope for it? The Canaanites were not innocent people minding their own business, being surprised by the Israelites' invasion. They were overwhelmingly corrupt. If you do any research into who the, the Canaanites were, you would recognize how evil that they really were. Deuteronomy 9, 4 through 6 describes it. He says, when the Lord your God drives them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord brought me in to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. Instead, the Lord will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness. So it's not because the Israelites were so much more righteous than anybody else. It's because the people that they were pushing out were way more wicked. Verse 5 says, If you are, not going to take, you are not going to take possession of their land because of your righteousness or your integrity. Instead, the Lord will for you because of their wickedness in order to fulfill the promise He swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. 
Man, God does not mince words with the Israelites. Y'all are a bunch of stubborn people, and you don't deserve this land. I'm giving it to you as a gift. Same thing with salvation, but we won't go there. Sometimes I get into conversations with atheists, and it is really interesting because it's almost the same story, different song every time. And many times I hear something like, well, why doesn't a good God destroy evil? Why doesn't a good God destroy evil? Why not? And I say, okay, that's, that's a good point. And then within the same breath, many times they say, why is God so harsh to the Canaanites? He killed everybody there. He had the Israelites go in there and wipe them all out. And you almost just want to laugh because you're like, do you not see what your, your incongruity the Canaanites were wicked. They were evil, and God used the Israelites to wipe them out of the land. He did what a good God would do and did judgment. Let's talk a little bit about the Canaanites. We know that they were wicked, and we know that God even gave them time to repent. They were known for their child sacrifice and their sexual immorality. They would beat drums in order to drown out the sounds of dying babies. When the parents would bring their baby to get executed, they would place them on this little dais or a little altar, and they would kill the baby, and they would, they would cut them to pieces. And they would beat the drums so that nobody could hear the screams of that baby. If that's not wickedness, I don't know what is. But they also had sexual perversions. They had temple prostitutes because they believed that if the gods would look down and watch them having sex with these prostitutes, that that would encourage them to mate up in heaven, and then that would give them a bountiful harvest. And so they would have all of this sexual immorality going on. They would have babies being executed in order to appease the gods. There was idolatry. There was all these wicked things. And God says, you're not any more righteous than them. They're wicked. <laughs> They're going to be wiped out. So God had a plan for them, and even Israel was removed from the land for their own idolatry and time of disobedience. So Canaan wasn't set apart just for destruction, because the Israelites also had to face consequences. But Leviticus 18 will describe the habits of these Canaanites. In fact, they even practiced bestiality. They, they slept with animals. They would do vile things, and we're not going to go into detail. But that's who... The Israelites are up against. And so Genesis 15, 16 says, In the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites, which is the people in Canaan, has not yet reached its full measure. Did you hear that? God gave a gracious period before destroying them. So that's why the Israelites stayed in Egypt for a certain period of time, because the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, all had time to repent, to change. Obviously, they didn't. God hates sin. And that's kind of the summary that I think we can get from this, that God hates sin. He hates the wickedness of sin. And we know that sin has infected all of humanity. Every single one of us has it in some greater and lesser degrees. And God's justice calls for complete destruction. All sin needs to be destroyed. And even just a small infection of it deserves complete and total destruction. Why else would there be a flood, a total earth flood that destroys his humanity? And so the Canaanite destruction in many ways is like a flood 
but using people to execute his justice. And so when we question God and we say, well, is that really just of God to destroy these Canaanites? You're really placing yourself in God's shoes and saying that you are God. You know better than God. And so just be aware that many people have tried to skirt around this issue. But the reality is the Canaanites were wicked. God is just. And he used the people to remove the Canaanites. And so this destruction was part of the obedient requirement of the Israelites. They were required to be obedient. And you know, we as Christians also face this issue of sin. And we too must fight against sin in our lives and in the lives of our family and in the lives of our church. And we have to be strong in removing wickedness from among ourselves, from our own hearts. We have to give it no quarter. We have to leave no survivors. Now, we will never be perfect, but we will continue to fight until the victory is complete. In many ways, what Christ has done on the cross by defeating death is by showing us a tangible, visible sign of the, of the victory. He has placed his foot on the neck of death and shown us, look, I bring the victory. We know that there are a few people that survived in this. There was not a complete and total removing of all the people out of Canaan. Uh, many, many scholars have looked back and said, oh, look, there's DNA of Canaanites in the Israelite uh, lineage. The Bible's not true. But right here we see that there were survivors. We see all the, all the evidence that there were Canaanites who escaped. And then later on we see where different tribes refused to remove the Canaanites completely from their land. So it's just silly how people try to play games with God's word and they're wrong. So another area people will attack is it says, well, look at this. It says that Joshua defeated, um, defeated them. He completely conquered them. So that means that there was no more um, enemies. So why did the tribes have to go in and fight again? Well, what happened is Joshua broke the back. He had a campaign and he broke the enemy's resistance. And that's what we see here in this passage, is all major opposition has been destroyed. So now all of Israel doesn't have to go back and refight. Also, God promised Israel a step-by-step -step granting of the land. He didn't say that this was a complete and utter um, conquest. And we'll see more about what that means in, in our entrusting. So, a quick way we can apply this section is that obedience is a method of victory. Obedience. Our obedience. You can have victory in your fight against sin in your life by clinging on to Christ. By clinging on to the promises and fighting against the idols and temptations in your own heart. Which means getting to the root of your problem in your life. Not just attacking the symptoms. Not just attacking your behaviors but making small steps in the right direction. When a, one pastor said that discipleship is obedience, it's long obedience in one direction. Obedience is long, or, or discipleship is long obedience in one direction. That's what we do. So if you are a, a man in this room and you are struggling with being obedient to the Lord, and a woman too, but I'm particularly talking to the men, you need to make a step. You need to take one step in the right direction and then follow it with a second step and a third step and a fourth step and continue on. So if that means the first thing you have to do is get yourself ready Sunday to be here on time to church, then that's the first step. Get yourself ready. 
if it means little habits of discipline, reading one verse a day, that's the first step. Means setting aside time for prayer. That means waking up five minutes early, then ten minutes early, then fifteen minutes early, then twenty minutes early. Taking these steps of obedience in order to have that time with the Lord before you start your day. And I was in the military, so I know four o'clock, three thirty was when I would get up, and I had to be at work probably about four forty-five. And um, it's not fun to wake up even earlier to have some quiet time. And there are ways that we can. Um, mitigate some of that by having the radio and and the bible read to us but small steps towards obedience you're not going to be perfect so i had someone mention to me this week that life is like a tree that drops a leaf every day and that leaf cannot be put back on the tree it shrivels up and dies so as you look at your life going forward not what you did in the past How are you using every day to the advantage of the Lord in obedience? Think about it. You cannot ever attach that leaf back. You cannot have your days back. So take time to pursue holiness and get rid of that sin in your life. And one of the ways we do it, and you'll have this in your home groups, is a uh, confession and repentance. And you'll have a handout for that in your home groups that you can look at. But how do you confess sin and repent of your sin? Um, And that's the method that God has given us to deal with sin in our lives. And finally, we have the means of victory. And I'm going to go through this pretty fast. This is verses 40 through 43. This is essentially a summary of the whole southern conquest. Joshua conquered the whole region, the hill country, the Negev, the Judean foothills, and the slopes with all their kings, leaving no survivors. He completely destroyed every living being as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Joshua conquered and all the land of Goshen as far as Gibeon. Joshua captured all these kings and their land in one campaign because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. Last week, we talked about it is God who fights for you. That's how they had the victory. The second thing is we need to trust in God. Our little uh, poem that I read to you, it is not strength that wins. My weakness is my shield. In lowly trust, we fight the fight and meekness wins the field. Joshua conquered these people step by step. And Deuteronomy 7.22 explains the reasoning God did it the way he did. He said, the Lord your God will, will drive out these nations before you little by little. You will not be able to destroy them all at once. Otherwise, the wild animals will become too numerous for you. Did you see God's reasoning? He didn't remove everybody from the land and then sin because wild animals had time to breed and there would be lions, and there would be tigers and bears, oh my, right? And, and these, would, these would come after the Israelites, and they wouldn't be able to survive. So God gave them a step-by-step removal of a few at a time. And so that was the, the means God used. So I've, I've read some interesting commentaries. And one commentary, the guy tried to take every king and relate it to some sin in, in their life. And so the king of Jerusalem was a king that, that fought against peace because Jerusalem means Salam is peace, right? And, all, and we have this whole thing. And they turned in this weird illustration on how this would work. That's not what this is about. But we do see how God gives victory step by step, little by little. And what we see in our lives is that sin is defeated step by step because many times 
I bet you wake up in the morning and you ask God to remove all suffering from your life. I know there's times when I've been in grief and in, in, in sorrow or depression, and I'll wake up and just be like, God, why is this still here? Why is that dark cloud not left? And he doesn't remove it all at once most of the time. Sometimes it's a little bit at a time. And the reason for that is, first off, he knows what he's doing. Second, it's growth for me. I grow in the step-by-step obedience even when I don't feel like it. Um, same thing with sin issues in your life. You, it may take a while to get a hold of some sin in your life, and, and God has a plan for it as well. So, let's just look at some application. We already looked at application. The question is, are you struggling to trust God? Are you struggling to trust God in your suffering, in your illness, in your recent diagnosis, in your daily sin battle, in your depression, in your anxiety? Are you trusting God? Or are you fighting this battle with your own strength, with your own means? Are you ignoring the signs of victory, not being encouraged by the Lord, and are pursuing your own path? Is that what you're doing, or are you trusting in God in your struggle? You're going to be asked in your home group to share some ways that God has been encouraging you in your struggle. So when you go to home group this week, you're going to be asked that question, have an answer. Be ready to share how God is encouraging you in your daily struggle, because we all need to hear that. That is a a way that we can share the burden. So I don't know everything that you're experiencing. It could be loss. It could be grief. It could be suffering of some kind. It could be a tangled relationship or former relationship. You could have the vestiges of a a former um, evil lifestyle hanging on to you. I don't know what you're going through, but God's Word does. And whatever it is that He has shared with you today, I hope that you are going to cling on to God's promises through Jesus Christ who intercedes for you in a personal way. In fact, we could say that Christ is the victory because He defeated sin and death and stomped the head of the serpent. In all of our songs that we sang today, we have a constant reminder of who God is against sin and suffering. So we can close in prayer with a confession of sin and a confession and a, and a repentance and also the promise of assurance. And so that's how we're going to close our prayer today. And in your own hearts, in your own places, this is a time of response. I want you to consider the words that we are praying um, about confessing our sin and, and the repentance we have and the promise of assurance, the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, I confess that I have sinned against you. I have delighted my soul in other things more than I have in you. Why then is it any surprise to me that you feel far off from me? I have driven you away in my arrogance. I have enjoyed the comforts of this world while I care too little that the poor cannot feed or care for themselves. Because of my greed, Father, I boast of all that I have and all that I desire. In one moment, I believe that I'm invincible, able to withstand any problem or struggle. In the next moment, I believe that all that the evil all around me is out to get me. My mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under my tongue are mischief and iniquity. 
O God, forgive me of my sin. Look on me with mercy and give me grace to delight in you rather than in my sin. Lift me out of this pit of sin. Cleanse me of my unrighteousness and fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I may walk in holiness and obey your commands. As we read in Isaiah 6-7, you promise to forgive us of our sins. So here now, O church, you stand in the gap for the world as representatives of God. We have been made clean as the angel of the Lord touched the unclean lips of Isaiah and made the man whole in word and deed, readying him to do his will. He has done the same for us by the cleansing touch of his son, Jesus Christ. In him, the disparity between our world and need is made right. In him, our unkindness in action and in word has been forgiven. Go now in the purity of the king to speak the gospel through actions of justice, mercy, grace, and love. And all God's people said, Amen.